Hi, I'm Jody Melman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today, my very special guest is American pop folk singer and songwriter Dar Williams. Having toured with Mary Chapin Carpenter, Patty Griffin, Ani DeFranco, Sean Colvin, and Joan Baez, Dar has established herself as a woman who follows her muses from coffee houses to festivals to the stage of the Bardavan. Dar's been busy during the pandemic, and it's about to get even busier with her songwriting, her retreats, and an upcoming tour. So, we'll pour the coffee while we chat about music, kids, and fiction writing. Dar, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavan. So, hi, Dar. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Good. Welcome to Backstage with the Bardavan. Thank you. And you you and the Bardavan have quite a history, don't you? Thankfully, yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I moved to uh, I moved north of the Bardavan uh, when I was um, in my early 30s. I moved to the Red Hook area, and then I came down to um, the you know Beacon Cold Spring area, mm-hmm. and um, you know the Bardavan was was the jewel, <laughs> was the jewel in the crown for the reason. So you always hope that you you know got invited to do some gig at the Bardavan, um, and. Um, and it's such a wonderful, uh, Bardavan such done such a great job of showing its history, you know, right there in the lobby. So you just know what you're stepping into. It was always a joy. So I've got a question for you. Do you remember the first show you saw at the Bardavan? Um, I will confess I never saw a show there. <laughs> You've just thought, been on stage, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, then what's the first time you were on stage at the Bardavan? It was for a musical event that had a whole bunch of us, which was great. And one of uh, um and um Peter Shickley, it was regional folks. And my best memory is that Peter Shickley was there, uh, who was PDQ Bach. Mm-hmm. And he was um somebody asked him what music he listened to. <laughs> so, so this leads back to my not having been to a show at the Bardavan. <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't listen to a lot of music because I'm always working on something in my head. And I said, he just told my, my secret. He just told the secret. And, I, and since then, I've learned that there are other musicians who just, you know, it, it's like they, they already have something happening in their heads. And it's so important to let in other musical influence and so important to let in other music. Uh, in your life so that you can grow but at the same time I'm always you know there's always some little concert happening in my head which is my next song struggling <laughs> to be a born that's kind of interesting because I'm I'm a writer myself and people say to me well what do you do you write and I said well first of all what do you read and I said I, when I'm writing I can't read anything because I don't want to by osmosis absorb any other outside influences it sounds like it's the same thing with you as a as a songwriter yes and and there's the uber version of that and then there's the small version so the uber version is that there's some artists that I have to be careful not to listen to in general um, like Joni Mitchell, 
because of the infectious, you know, I've, I've, I've recognized the infectious quality of, of her voice and her style. And, but, you know, with gratitude too, because it, it influenced me. Um, and then, and Joan Baez, but then I toured with Joan Baez. So I, I couldn't exactly, you know, throw out my vinyls then. <laughs> and, uh, I, I welcomed that influence on all levels. Um, and then there's, yes, that sort of smaller, it's just that kind of, um, yeah, it's the, it, your brain is sort of in this field, you know, when you're writing a song or perhaps when you're writing anything um, where you are sort of, yeah, jumping and leaping about. I'm writing a book as we speak, you know, just this morning I was working on this book um, that's based on the songwriting retreats that I lead. And, um, and everything I'm doing sort of encourages this, kind of feeling of running around with a with a butterfly net <laughs> trying to <laughs> capture the next feeling the next thing you know but but with playfulness and joy and yeah in my life there's not a lot of room for other people's music when I'm you know leaping about in that field trying to write a song so tell me a bit a little bit about what you're writing um the the book or the song that I'm um, writing both both because <laughs> it sounds like you're you're very busy these days what you know Busy, yes, and and busy, no. Um, I'm I'm very uh, peripatetic, I think, in in the way I write and the way I proceed in life. So so I'll, and it's been re- great to write. So I'm writing a song called I'm writing a book called Writing a Song That Matters, and it's based on the writing a song that matters retreat that I've been leading with three other uh, area performers, uh, Raquel Vidal and. Rick Gedney and Michelle Gedney, who are in the group Open Book, um, and um, sort of trying to pull together a, a pedagogy, you know, without being <laughs> pushy. <laughs> so, so, uh, and it's really reminded me how open we have to be to breaking these myths about you sit down and you write for hours at a time. So I'm busy, yes, but I'm busy because something will come to me while I'm grocery shopping and something will come to me while I'm on my walk and, and, um, and other things have to happen in a kind of crunched sit down way. And, um, but I find myself only sitting for, you know, an hour or two a day and then letting it like songwriting kind of float around and, and create its own associations and think, why did I use that word? You know, I, it's such a breezy tone. I, I shouldn't use that six syllable word, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> I'll let that happen. So yes, I am busy because that's very much on my mind writing this book. It's the second draft. And then, um, and then I have four or five songs that, um, that I have not, that I'm not working on formally, but that have begun, um, and the pandemic song that I'm working on was, you know, again, it came, you know, something that I let come to me because people, I, I don't believe in saying I have to write a song about this because it's so important. <laughs> <laughs> like when Trump was elected, a friend of mine got an email from somebody saying, you have to write political songs now because... <laughs> You know, because we must address this and, and this is the role that you have now. And my friend and I both rolled our eyes because if there's no sort of poetic resonance in you, then you're just going to be 
you know, hitting the drum like everybody else and saying, I'm upset or this doesn't work for me or this, you know, it's when something grabs you poetically that you can, you know, enter into it with, with, with hopefully some contribution to culture and society. So um, when the pandemic started, all these people started to write these beautiful pieces about what it was like, the isolation or the shock or the, the loss. And I couldn't find my way in. Um, but then I saw a picture of um, the Himalayans, the Himalayan mountains that one could see from northern India, specifically a very Buddhist part of northern India. And, and I think that the Himalayans have often been sort of seen as the sacred mountains, mm -hmm. you know. And so I found myself thinking about a person sort of who lives a very isolated spiritual life seeing the actual mountains that are, you know, the metaphor for that experience, that internal experience, and kind of having to decide whether they want to take that revelation back to the meditation pillow or if they want to kind of get more out in the streets to, to literally protect the literal sacred mountains. Right, right. <laughs> but but that's, that's a song that I have to approach very carefully because you know, that's a, that's a really big decision. And that's a very, you know, beautiful decision of, of how we take ourselves out of our spiritual realm that keeps us centered and connected in a really beautiful way and bring those connections out into, um, you know, carrying the posters and raising your fist in the air. And, you know, sure enough, I realized that I was, you know, coming onto that idea for a song at the same time as, as Black Lives Matter really revved back to life in the way that we know it today after Joy, George Floyd's uh, murder. And, um, and, you know, it's sort of how do we take all of those good, peaceful parts of ourselves and, and <laughs> so that we can get out of the street and really agitate. Um, and um, so that's, I'm, that's what I'm working on, but that's like eight months in <laughs> a verse and a half, maybe. <laughs> Good chorus, though. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been doing during the pandemic? I know that you teach and I know that you lecture. And uh, besides doing your writing, have you been isolated in that respect or have you been busy? You know, I have an excellent manager. I mean, many of us do. Who Or, or sometimes it's, you know, your son is helping you with the audio for right. this. You know, some really helpful people show up and we're able to proceed and and they say oh yeah i've been doing you know creating great audio quality for computers for years now you just never asked <laughs> so we i found um i have a great tech person named kelly and i have a great manager who said let's do this let's do zoom concerts let's yes get the nice headphones and and find the right chords and throw out the chords that <laughs> have been wonky all along and you know which ones they are and so um i i started also venues like the bardavan you know um started asking artists to submit songs just to keep things interesting and for fundraising and for helping the artists you know creating the two-way street of support and so Right off the bat, I was asked to do some things, um, and <laughs> the first thing I did was for Bryn Mawr College, I sang a song called As Cool As I Am, which is part of their Mayhole ceremony, um, 
<laughs> at the end of the school year, uh, graduation time. And I had my <laughs> phone and I didn't have any stand for it or anything. So I stuck it up against on top of five books on the top step of a ladder, freestanding ladder. And then I propped up a book to back the ladder to stick the thing on. And, um, oh no, I did find a stand for it. I found a gooseneck stand out of nowhere, like this ancient thing that held my phone. And I think there was some duct tape <laughs> involved in this, right? <laughs> I started to perform it, um, in my kitchen, you know, I found this one backdrop where I looked good and and looked funny, <laughs> but it's not too like revealing and not too messy. And halfway through the song, and I did it live. Halfway through the song, the gooseneck just went <laughs> lower down, to, you know, like my boobs, and I, and I and I just watched it go, and I just kept on seeing like, okay, okay, and then finally I because I had been in, you know, pandemic for a month and I kind of lost some of my charms. I <laughs> yelled an expletive. <laughs> and, and the song ended and I, you know, just stuck the landing with a big smile, like, yeah. and there we are. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it was just awful. And, and I remember walking away going, huh. I wonder if I got away with that. And then sure enough, you know, my manager is like, okay, get the stand, get this, get the headphone, get the cords. And now I have a whole setup and I've done concerts and um, I joined Susan Warner on her concert and that helps me get up to speed. So I'm very grateful to her for patiently, you know, for putting out the invitation. Like we pushed each other kindly into being in this realm. And um, it was... Um, so interesting to see what the world is like when you don't have an audience to applaud and who you are and you know pretty existential right, I did right. five concerts and then we did a um an online retreat and and there was there were tears and there was meaning and a lot of fun and connection to the point where actually we're going to have an online retreat starting in 2022 we'll go forward having online retreats as well as in-person retreats. These are the songwriting retreats you're talking about. Right, right, right. Sorry, right, yes. Because I, I, I saw that you're going to have them this July and August at, at Stony Point. Yes, at Stony Point Center, yes, in Stony Point, New York. So if people We're, want to sign up, where can they go to sign up? There's a website called darwilliamsretreat.com. Just in case I decided to change the name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is, that retreat that Star do, that Dar's doing... So darwilliamsretreat.com, and um, yeah, we're, it, we're very excited to be coming back to, to that. I was looking at your schedule. I mean, you do yoga, and you have individual sessions where you break out, and tell us a little bit about the retreats in case anybody's interested. Um, they are, um, yeah, we have a, a schedule, but okay, is it okay that I'm pouring coffee right now? Oh, yes, Absolutely. By the way, for all of our listeners, we are in Dar Williams' kitchen. She's making coffee. So we're just kind of actually having coffee together. This is kind of unusual. You can you can hear the clinking. It's it's very NPR. Yeah. <laughs> um it's a great it's um we we've created the first year was a bit chaotic, but then we kind of came into this form and then we um where we have um uh there's yoga and 
yours truly rarely makes it down to yoga. Um, <laughs> but um, we have wonderful instructors who, who love the, you know, the mission of coming to this retreat to kind of open yourself up and, and see what happens. And so uh, then there's, uh, we have these sort of breakfast announcements where we announce our, where we give prompts. Um, and so if you are a person who hasn't written a song in 10 years um, and thinks the well is dry and nothing is coming to you and you're not coming to us with any half-written songs, which is another reason a lot of people come, they feel a little stuck or they just want to keep the, the flow, um, then we, these prompts can be very helpful. So a prompt will be something like, I saw it through the rain or the river below or the wheel. <laughs> You know, whatever kind of sparks of loose associations where you actually we recently did a thing where we would say the blank house and you your imagination would just go right in and the haunted house, the empty house, the family house, the old house. So um, so we give prompts and then people can go off um, into circles with different instructors. I do a couple. I lead a couple of those circles, but it's like eight or ten people. Um, where you play a song and then we set a timer for 10 minutes and where we can talk about the song because more than 10 minutes tends to, to drift in two directions that aren't very helpful. One is that you start giving life advice instead of song advice. So if you write a song called God, I want to get sober, you know, <laughs> the second 10 minutes are going to be like, Oh, by the way, you know, these meetings are really good. And, <laughs> so that's not helpful and the other thing is that you can feel like it's not your song anymore and so when you go back to sit down it's not feeling you you, you have to sort through too much other other input so but so we have this thing where people will sing their songs in a circle and those are wonderful and there's just this ethos there's just this way that people talk to each other I don't even set ground rules but they just say I really love the song you know and they just talk about what they loved and then they'll say, now, when you said the word son, did you mean S-U-N or S-O-N? And, and that's, it's that kind of stuff. Right. And where people can really strengthen their narrative with support and love and people who want that to happen for you. So then we have lunch and then we have more song circles. And then we um, have an evening performance where people can sign up just to sing a song that they've written usually without any critique, just so we can appreciate one another. Um, and, um, and then I do a one-on-one a -on -one with everybody. Mm -hmm. I get to everybody once just to have a thing. And sometimes it's people um, talking about their feelings mm -hmm. about songwriting and about creativity or time that they feel that they've lost or time that they want. And um, it can be very emotional. Um, but usually we, we'd say, you know, does this need a bridge? <laughs> So that's the way it goes. And then people hang out with each other after after hours and I and I don't know what happens. <laughs> These were originally in Garrison, right? And because of uh COVID, yes. the center's closed. So now that's now you're going to be going out to Stony Point. Yeah, exactly. And we're so grateful that Stony Point took on the you know, looked into this time and projected that we would be in the clear if we were all vaccinated to do something that was, you know, in person uh, starting in July. So the first one is July 5th and um, we are requiring vaccination. Um, and that, you know, so um, 
and we'll be doing lots of things that I think we just learned along the way, you know, opening windows and having hand sanitizer around and having a lot of outdoor things. Mm. You know, I think a lot of us enjoyed not having a, the rhinovirus over right. the last year. Right. So, so I kind of <laughs> want to keep that going forward as well as having general caution in place. But, you know, we're going to be eating together and singing together. So this, these are sandwiched in between your tour, which is going to be starting in June. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, are you going to be busy? Because you're going to be hitting uh, New Jersey, New York, uh, yeah, New yeah, Hampshire, Maryland. I mean, Pennsylvania. It's great. It's so, it's, I'm, again, this is my manager, Patty Romanoff, uh, saying, um, you know, saying, okay, and then we're going to push you out of the nest. You know, <laughs> the first thing she just said, we're going to push you out of the nest of, of, you know, cleaning out your basement, which was my <laughs> pandemic, my first pandemic activity. And we're going to get you with the headphones and doing concerts <laughs> and we're going to do it right. And we're going to spend time. And yes, you're going to have to figure out what to do with your hair. And then she pushed me out of the nest again and said, okay, let's, let's get you back on the road doing live performances in um, June. How do, you feel? How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel fantastic. I actually had to do one little onstage thing recently um, at a big event, and um, it was so natural. It's like, um, you know, it's like seeing an old friend. I'm really excited. Is it weird to be doing a normal activity in these unusual and abnormal times? Um, Is there a sense of disconnect? The disconnect, I think, is something we can all really learn from, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, but I, they're supposed to be, I mean, Lord, we, we had an opportunity to learn a lot about ourselves in the last, um, in the last year, and we're not only bringing our bodies back into the social environment, we're bringing our bodies with all of the stuff we learned about what friendship is, and the importance of solitude. <laughs> so, I, I had a friend who came this weekend and we just like talked, you know, for 48 hours and, and then she left and I was exhausted. I mean, just, and couldn't figure out why. And I thought, because that's a first. So yeah, you know, it, it feel, I think that um, my sense when I stood up on that stage was that I was able to tap into so much more um, of a skill set than I realized that I had, you know, because really you just think I'm coming out of my car and putting on the makeup, putting on the thing, I'm doing my vocal warmups and I'm going out to the stage and, and who knows what's going to happen. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes it good. But being up there, I thought, no, this, I've done this over a thousand times and, and I, I noticed all the sort of micro adaptations to the weather and the sound system, and the audience, of course, you know, and and my feelings, and recognize what a beautiful, complicated, accumulated uh, wisdom I, you know, one has in one's profession. Were you on the stage solo, or did you have uh, other musicians up there with you? I was just solo. And when you looked out at the audience, were people wearing masks? Was everybody vaccinated? What kind of vibe and if feedback did you get from the audience? Everyone was in a car, so... Oh, <laughs> so really? It was a drive-in kind of thing? Yes, but, you know, the thing is, I had done so many concerts where I'd go, da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. silence. <laughs> 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 that was no surprise. 
so it was, it was, um, it was totally fine. Um, and, um, and that's kind of great too, to know that you, you, you're sort of, this is, this is the offering I'm making to the gods. I put it at the silent gods feet and I walk away and perhaps, you know, perhaps something happened and, or, but I gave my offering. So, so that's, that's what happened. So how did you, how, what, how did you feel when Patty first said that you're going to be doing a gig at this particular time? Was it something that you said, I'm not really ready for yet, or I'm just, I'm willing to take whatever the universe is offering up to me at this time? Well, both. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, so, so, so I toast everybody who's heading out in that direction, you know, as adults or whatever, or, you know, there are a lot of us who, who know that pushed out of the nest feeling and know we're not going to be ready and know that that's part of, you right. know, part of it. That's interesting. So, you know, I know that you wrote a book um, that dealt with it's, uh, what I found in a, in a thousand tours. Where you went what I found in a thousand towns. In a thousand towns. Has being in a pandemic changed your perspective about towns and the importance of music and coffee houses? I mean, because we're in a whole different society now. Um, it reinforced everything that I uh, learned in researching this book. You know, I um, there's this thing called social capital. Mm -hmm. So there's, <clears throat> you know, financial capital. We know what that is, of course. Political capital, you know. Mm -hmm. I can do this marriage, you know, uh, equality bill because I, you know, did this thing for my constituency that, you know, I'm using my my popularity and, and political capital, et cetera. You know, so you go into these bank accounts, uh, these reserve bank accounts for, <clears throat> you know, the resources you need to, to do things. Social capital is um, the, I can borrow, you know, I borrowed a cup of sugar from, this person and now they feel more comfortable borrowing a cup of milk from me. Um, it's also called social trust. That's, and that's what sociologists call it. Um, this, that sense that, that you live in a place where you can trust people and, and be generous and contribute to society because society contributes to you. So places with high social trust have a certain vibration and places that don't <laughs> actually kind of don't have a vibration. Um, and everybody has something. So I, so um, people would say, how do you measure that, that vibration? And uh, you know, is it, <laughs> I was, I would make a joke, you know, well, maybe the way you measure it is how many coexist bumper stickers are in a town and not just in the driveway of, you know, the Bardavon or any other Dar Williams concert, right. you know, like, <clears throat> how many um, how many people uh, are um, not doing special mail order vitamins? Where <laughs> 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 people were so like not social with each other, but but they were always doing these special mail order vitamins and acidophilus and stuff. And I was like, you care more about your internal intestinal community than the people around you. <laughs> you know, fostering the flora and fauna of your intestinal community. So, so, um, I couldn't really measure that thing that happens that people are able to build in their communities. But when the pandemic happened, 
I was noticing that the places that had high social trust, or I call it positive proximity, were coming up with more and more artful ways for people to meet safely, to look out for people who had just been disenfranchised um, and <clears throat> um, were feeling uh, emotionally or um, you know physically cut off in a way that that needed attention. Um, so the the places that I pointed to where I said these are the places that have that thing where people trust each other and they walk out the door in the morning and they want to contribute and they trust each other and they trust society and they don't necessarily like each other, mm. but they, they got it going on, um, are doing really well and um, are, are handling, are managing this situation with a certain amount of, um, you know, inclusion and, um, you know, kindness and care. Um, and fun. So that's what I learned um, after, you know, I, I wrote this book basically saying, look, you don't have to hug everybody. And maybe it's just because I'm such a big old wasp. Like, I don't want to hug everybody. <laughs> but, but do certain things that put the mechanisms in place where love and good things will come out of, of. So create a, if you're in a really rundown place and you have a cafe, See if you can start a cafe that has some extra room that people can go to just to write their poetry and talk and think and dream about what the future could look like. A lot of that will have to do with what the community could look like. Have a toy corner so that exhausted parents can let their kids play while they say things like, "Do you know, I heard so-and-so wants to put a green roof on the elementary school. You know, we can make that happen. I know so-and-so and I know so-and-so and... And then we should make a big sign to let people know what we did. You know, exhausted parents who get to talk to other parents have a lot of ideas for what to do in a community. So, you know, I had these very micro suggestions like that and, and sort of a general sort of thing like invest in identity building projects in your community to um, uh, that have to do with things like food or nature or whatever's particular to you, your history. Like the Bardavon, putting all of that history in the lobby so that we really know what we're stepping into. You know, do that stuff because that will bring out those impulses of, of connection in you, the, the strength of weak ties that, that starts a lot of interesting projects and then improves the schools and the libraries and the sense of well-being and the kids who are proud to have grown up there and all that stuff. So in answer to your question, um, I found places that had high positive proximity that had done those things and that were really um, responding quite elegantly to what was being thrown at them mm -hmm. so quickly. Well, you know, it seems, especially with the Bardavon, they had to figure out a way to pivot. I mean, yes. you know, here you had a venue and you venues across the country that literally, you know, the brakes were on, there was nothing that they could do about it. So smartly, the Bardavan pivoted and they said, okay, we're going to take, as you know, famous albums and let's, let's, you know, reach out to uh, musicians and put out a call and see if we can get people to respond, not only as listeners, but also as artists. And I know that you participated in Carol King's Tapestry, celebrating mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary and your song was so far away. Why mm -hmm. don't you tell yeah. me a little bit about that? That was a beautiful rendition. You were the first song on the virtual album. I was I was so happy to have you know a lot of times I get in I would get invited to do things and everything was 
<clears throat> already taken. And, and I would, you know, and I would learn the song that was the least, um, A lot of times I've I've been asked to do something where I have to learn a song that I is it, so like back catalog that I have to learn it for the first time. And I was so happy that I, you know, I said, well, the one that I really want to do, and then, you know, I can do all these other ones, but the one I really want to do is so far away. And, and the bard of all was like, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, I was so thrilled. And I, uh, you know, she just, there's this thing called the major seventh chord. And it's kind of a more open version of a chord. And that song has a lot of them in it. And it just, it's, it just takes you it, it, into its own world, you know, and you, you just become that narrator, you know, yeah. and I, it just, it's so deep. I've always just loved that song so much. And, and, um, and so I played it on electric guitar just to let the guitar, I, the, the chords ring a little bit. That's why I chose that. And, um, you know, electric guitar is great for just creating a an ambient terrain, you know, that's loose. And so that was fun. That was the first time I'd broken out the electric guitar for any of these performances. That was very cool. I saw that and I thought I thought that that was a very innovative way to do it as opposed to doing it on a uh, an acoustic guitar. That must have been a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I, I don't get to do, I mean, I, I really like how different the electric guitar is. And so it's fun to explore, but I hadn't, I hadn't brought that into the public yet. Did you watch your performance and any of the other performances on the album? Oh, gosh, I think I, well, I watched the whole thing, but it was, you know, in the, in pandemic times, I don't probably watch as closely, but I, I thought they were beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, I, uh, so thank you for doing that. And it was really fun to see, you know, like Annie Lennox's living room. Right, you know, right. Lips and this couch in the I background. I know, wasn't that? That was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it was, it, but, you know, but it still has that, like, I don't know. After seeing that, I can imagine Annie Lennox going to the grocery store. Like I did, no matter how funky and fun these houses are, and her performance was beautiful too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no matter how f funky the backgrounds are, you know, of these online things that you see, it's like they can't, they don't live in the yellow submarine. You know, they live in houses with, right. with photographs and, and books and stuff. And you just go, gosh, that they have to do what the rest of us do. Right. They have to do the dishes. Right. There's some part, there's some child part of your brain that, ha that is informed, I think, by, by seeing actual places where people actually live. Well, I think it makes them, makes everybody uh, realize that we're all the same. You know, that no matter, for example, with Annie Lennox or Carly Simon, how famous you are, we're all the same. We're all people just trying to get by and we're living our daily lives. Yes. And I've learned that. I mean, I see people, you know, there was, I, I opened for an icon of mine and I had crossed paths with her a few times and she said, um, you know, I, and I, and I saw her, you know, backstage with the, the stage food and the, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, I'm really working on my bulimia. And I was like, wow. Whoa. So, so it's, it, it's, it was, you know, because, because we're all part of this, this world, you know, mm -hmm. we're, it's like, 
you got to get pretty honest pretty fast with this this loose net of acquaintances because then we can really show up more genuinely for each other mm. at these festivals and you know it's, it can get pretty lonely if we're caught up in our personae and so she just said it and she kind of looked at me like come on we got to do this and I, I, I think I <laughs> told her some big secret about my life <laughs> we were even you know yeah right I said, and what did you say <laughs> I think I'll tell you right now. Exactly. (laughs) So, what have your kids been doing during this whole process? Have they been going to? They've been uh, doing the virtual schools, right? They did virtual. They had the the the, they had the opportunity to be live, and they said that they were going to feel you know embarrassed. (laughs) I mean, relieved, but a little embarrassed if it was for nothing and and there weren't any outbreaks. And sure enough, there were a couple of of isolated incidents, but the school handled it really well. I, so my kids are back live right now Mm -hmm. and they are, it's so beautiful to watch them, you know, being such social creatures. Um, and, um, and to see what, what a, um, absence that was for them because all I saw was them thriving on their devices Mm -hmm. some isolated hangouts with friends and stuff like that um uh and for me it was great because in the morning you know there I was half asleep they got up in the morning made themselves breakfast you know maybe chatted a little with each other and then went off to their rooms and I would hear the different voices of the teachers and the interactions and I, you know, hearing someone say, well, what do you think, Taya? And my, and hearing my daughter in real time going, well, um, I, you know, maybe he's, <laughs> you know, whatever book they were reading. Right. Uh, and um, it was just hearing my kids learn and hearing their teachers. I, I, I'm so grateful to have been part of their intimate experience of learning and so amazed at the teachers. I would hear the teachers being like, okay, pretend that you're driving too fast the way I was the other night. Or so that like, they <laughs> put themselves in yeah. the, the thing. And my sister's a teacher and she was really not spooked by people seeing her home, but she was careful about what home, you know, <laughs> she wasn't doing it in the bathroom. And, but she let them see parts of her life. And at the end of the year, she had a contest and whichever group did the best group project would win something that they requested of her. And the group that won asked her to take her dog to a dog spa and get and, and get this dog all gussied up and sh- shaved and everything. And, and so she, they won and she presented the dog, you know, that they'd seen throughout the year. And, um, and it was such a celebration of her dog grooming. <laughs> I just think that was the best of all worlds. You know, she, she knew where the boundaries were, but she opened up a little. And um, there was, she got some beautiful letters about what that private connection was. So do we have anything in your future with uh, Amelie? Oh, n- um, no. Um, Amelie is, uh, she, she got two books and then she became like 13 and I just wasn't, sure what to do with a 13 year old uh, I'll find out next year I was going to say you've got one living in your house right <laughs> yeah so maybe with that research uh, it was such a lovely you know I don't know what it is if everybody has this or whether this is more sort of what happened with the boomers and the Xers 
I remember my teenage, my, my childhood so vividly. And I remember those feelings. Mm. I don't, it, and they were so, so awful. And it was, so I went back in time to write a book about an 11 year old slash 12 year old. And, um, and it was all right there. So, uh, but then 13 just gets, it was all right there, but it was just a little too murky. So we'll see. Well, things also changed too. From the time you wrote the book, I mean, what, when oh, was yeah. that? That was a while ago. So 13-year-olds are a bit more sophisticated now with TikTok and Facebook and social media. Yeah, yeah. But they also have an opportunity to know their parents differently. You know, I just remember when I was 12 or 13, I just felt like all the teachers and, <laughs> and my family and extended family kind of were like, well, you've gone off and joined that pack of wolves, you know, wolves. So, you know, you're going to go off and hang out with your friends outside the deli and walk around town in this big horde. And we're going to kind of treat you like this <laughs> mildly unpleasant and off in her own world growing up self. And go do that thing. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, go feral. <laughs> and we'll see you on the other side. Right. It was very lonely for me. I, I always appreciated that, that the, you know the odd gym teacher who connected with us somehow. And so I have really done my best to empathize with my kids, to apologize when I lose my temper and explain to them what was going on, but also say, you know, it's not okay, but I'm trying to manage my feelings. And, mm -hmm. and I think the parents do that more. And so, so on the one hand that the social training is much more complicated and much more, um, permanent, you know, so you make a mistake, it lives forever. And, and those are hard things to navigate And the impersonal, you know, trolling culture. That's, that's tough. Um, and, um, at the same time, I think parents are, are not pulling up the drawbridge as much. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't think they are. And also friends of parents. I feel very invested in my daughter's friends' lives mm -hmm. And um, she has a friend who changed her name recently, and I call her by the changed name, and her parents don't even know <laughs> that she's done it. So I'm like the first adult who sort of says, yeah, you, you can do that. You right. can change your life that way, that radically, and, um, and I'll be a witness. And it's very important for me to be that, you know, you, your parents can't do everything. And I really think that, well, that's what Amelie was about was not just that terrain of, of parents and nuclear family, but the community family. Um, and, I, and I love that about kids now. They have more access to us. Right, that's true. And I, I think that the, the uh, type of parenting that our parents gave us, as you said, it's, it was much more closed. You know, children are to be seen and not heard, where now mm -hmm. children are heard. Yeah, or we don't want, or we are to be seen and not heard. Right. You know, that's, uh, you know, as parents, that I mean, I think there was this ethos, you know, and, and I mean, I wrote about it in a song that had to do with <laughs> clinical depression, um, where uh, the parents say, we, we're we not going to share our vulnerable selves with right. you because that will make you feel unsafe. I mean, I think that was the philosophy. You should present yourself as, as bulletproof. Right. Um, so that you can be the pillar, you know, and um, I don't think that's the the word on the street anymore, and so um, so everybody was Mrs. This and Mrs. That, and 
I'm Dar. I mean, <laughs> or, or actually kids call me like Taya's mom. <laughs> and I, which is great. You know, it just kind of makes me remember that I wear a lot of different hats. It's I think good for all of us, but you know, I'm constantly saying, Hey, call me Dar. And there was like one family that did that. They were younger parents and it was like, call me Barbara. And I'm still friends with Barbara, you know, right. the, the, the friend, my friend's mom. Um, and so, uh, I think the kids are calling us by our first name and seeing us as first names too, you know, not just, as somebody said, not just clunky boxes that lean in and lean out, <laughs> like something approximately the size of a refrigerator box that sort of leans in or <laughs> it sort of leans in and gives some like amorphous muffled feedback and then leans back out again. We're, we are, um, we're in the mix and, and we're empathizing. Um, and I think that's healthy. And I'm hoping that that helps this next generation navigate that more socially complicated thing that, that social media has brought. Well, it sounds like there is a lot of fodder for you to write another Amelie book. You're so, you're, you're killing me. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something I'm working on after our, our session. And, okay. And I'm, okay. You're a writer. I love, so, so I'll let everybody know I am working on something. And, and it speaking might of working on something, what about it? Do we have any albums that might be coming out in the future? Or is that something that? We have an album coming out in September. All right. I have an album in September that was supposed to come out last September. And again, genius of administration, my peeps just said, "Okay, we're going to lift it off like a like a like something that you made on a loom, called 2020." And you know, this whole tour schedule, tour that we've set up, and we're going to stick it right on this uh, identical loom called 2021. So my whole fall tour from 2020 is my 2021 tour. We just moved the whole thing, and um, and yeah, it's it's um, one of the songs on it is a re. Uh, um, uh, a piano version um, of um, "You're Aging Well," which is a song that I um, was on my first album, and um, I, <laughs> I said, "Oh my gosh, this is the 25th anniversary of when I went on tour with Joan Baez with that song," and and I'm about the same age she is when we did it. <laughs> my manager, I was like. And then I was like, and you suggested that I re-record this song, you know, to Patty, my manager. She goes, Indeed I did. I was like, you are one clever bunny. She did a lot of good things with the pandemic. She that was that was genius. And it was really interesting to do that kind of both sides now, you know, the song You're Aging Well that right. I wrote when I was 27, you know, 25 years later. But that's exciting. So you have an album in September, a tour yes. starting in June. You have you have retreats that are coming up in July and August, and you're not going to be sleeping anytime until uh, until your your teenagers are out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that is is I think maybe the key to my my ability to have this career is that I can curl up and sleep anywhere. Of course, the pandemic exposed me to articles that said that that's not healthy but <laughs> for me being a cat they can just go you know find me a patch of sun and I'll sleep for a while that's how I'll do it I'll, I'll just sleep when I can and um enjoy the adventure I'm completely excited to get back out there I could have become a completely instinctual gardening you know creature and um there will be more of that 
in, in my life going forward, um, I think, but, um, I'm that, not yet. And, and, um, I'm, I'm so grateful to, I have to say to the Bardavon, to, to everybody who kept me, you know, brushing my hair, putting on a little mascara and, um, and connecting again. Um, it's all about. Well, thank you, Dar. Thanks for being with us today backstage with the Bardavon. And we look forward to seeing you on stage really soon. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Dar Williams and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Melman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you're enjoying this podcast, please review it on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.